HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca, home of New York's craft cider. I love New York. Plan your getaway at visitithaca.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today I have a really interesting discussion um, with the wonderful Joe Fassler, who is the deputy editor at The Counter, uh, formerly known way back when as the New Food Economy, um, but uh, been the, the counter for about two and a half, three years now, right, Joe? Uh, yeah, it was January 2020, so right before the pandemic. Right before the pandemic, that's right. Yeah. Anyway, uh, if you don't subscribe to The Counter... Get online and do it now because you will read stuff there that you are not going to read anywhere else. And um, and that brings us to the story that caught my eye that Joe wrote a few weeks ago. Uh, the title was Lab-Grown Meat is Supposed to Be Inevitable. The Science Says Otherwise. And if you're looking for the article, it was published on September 22nd. Um, so, Joe, I, I was just – I am not a fan of this whole, like, subculture of faux meat. I think it's crazy. Yeah. And a stupid waste of resources. Um, and your article really made me feel good about my uh, <laughs> about my attitude. Talk nice. about validation, man. Um, but just for clarity for people, I, if you would explain the differences between these meat alternatives for people who haven't really been following this controversy, there's the Impossible Burger, which is a plant-based meat versus Beyond Beef as an example of two brands. There are many other brands out there, people, um, which I believe is cultured meat. And cultured meat is what we're going to talk about. So so let's – what are those differences exactly? Yeah. So actually um, Impossible and Beyond are both plant-based. Oh, um, so there you it, go. Impossible is a – is the, the large difference between them is that um, – Impossible Burger has really embraced uh, GMOs and uses gem- genetically modified um, forms of plant protein to create this this famous sort of bleeding effect that they have. That's like a mm-hmm. medium rare burger, and and Beyond Beef uh, doesn't do that, um, but it's still you know kind of trying to compete in that sort of space of uncanny realism, um, and they use pea <laughs> protein. So bo- both are plant based. The the interesting thing is that there are no cultured meat 
products available in the U.S. Um, ah. at all. And so often when people hear lab-grown meat or hear cultured meat, um, they think of the Impossible Burger or they think of Beyond Beef because that's what they're familiar with and sure. that's what they can buy. And they know there's kind of a sense of, oh, this is, you know, sort of futuristic um, and interesting. But actually it's a totally it's a totally different thing. So cultured meat is where you take animal cells from a living animal. Um, you can extract them harmlessly via a biopsy um, uh -huh. and through a complicated process, grow those cells in stainless steel bioreactors. So what you're actually producing in that case is a, a a slurry <laughs> of actual <Yummy>. animal cells, <laughs> animal cells that we would then eat. So that's yeah. the difference. But How but but delicious. one to be clear, one does not really exist yet. There's a small pilot in Singapore where they're selling chicken nuggets that are a, that have a proportion of the cell slurry in it made from avian cells and uh -huh. a proportion of plant-based stuff. But as far as I know, that's the only really really limited commercial pilot in the what world. What about the, the Israelis? I thought the Israelis had something going on, Mosa meat or something like that. That's not on the market yet either. I don't think so. The, the, so Olive. there's a few companies in 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 Israel that are coming very close and are and are working to do that and are even building um, like uh, Future Meat Technologies is one that has a plant there that they say can can um, you know can prepare about you know a few hundred kilograms of meat every day or something like that. Um, right. but, but from what I understand, they're in the kind of final stretch of the regulation and they're not actually selling their product commercially yet. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. Well, thank you for clarifying that. I actually uh, did not deduce all of that. I know I did. I read a few other articles about this um, yeah. in preparation. But anyway, um, so the process of creating lab meat, you started, you touched on it there when you said that you, you culture some, you get some cells from a live animal, uh, you culture the tissue in whatever magical way that happens. Uh, then it, the slurry of that goes into this bioreactor and it sort of grows. But there's a lot more to it really than that. And it has to be done in very small batches and then it sort of expands. Can you talk, just take us a little bit through, um, you know, some of that process? Because I want people to understand how crazily complex this is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just one, one quick note on, on what you just said. I, I think there's a lot of confusion in general about, yeah. about whether or not these, com these products are available or how imminent they are. And I think the industry has done a lot to, to really make it seem like this is something, you know, if you can't buy it right the second, you can buy it next week. Right. Um, and, and that's very really much not so. true. That um, so true, that's yeah. part of the confusion here. And, and one of the reasons that's interesting as kind of a lead into the question you just asked is yeah. that in some ways, this technology is actually not new. Um, the pharmaceutical industry has right. been uh, culturing animal cells in bioreactors for decades. Um, huh. And in fact, many vaccines are produced that way. So not the new, um, the, the mRNA COVID vaccines, like the Pfizer, um, yeah. is a different thing. But the Johnson & Johnson, for instance, and I think the AstraZeneca are both made through animal cell culture. And it's a oh, very similar process. The difference here, though, is what you're trying to do in that case is you're, what you, <laughs> the product you want is the attenuated virus that, that becomes part of the vaccine. Um, uh -huh. The cells are essentially a waste product that you're still growing them. The difference in this case is that uh, we would then be eating the cells and the and the cells are the desired product um but they work in the similar way. So what that is, is you, you, you need to get this line of cells from an animal yeah. uh, and you need to immortalize it in some ways because um, 
cells will not divide infinitely unless you transform them. Um, and wow. there's actually a lot of different ways you can go about that. And, and it's very hard to tell uh, what these companies are actually doing. But we have to assume that they have immortalized cell lines because otherwise you'd have to go back and take a biopsy from, you know, from a chicken or from a, from a cow, you know, every mm -hmm. single time. And it's just not, um, commercially viable in, in sure. any way. So we have to assume they're doing that. And so then you take it and, and basically, um, you put it in a reactor and the cells need to have a growth medium, which you can basically think about as synthetic blood, right? Like the cells in our body are constantly delivered nutrients and the other things, the hormones, the other things that they need through yeah. the blood. And so what we need is a, is a growth medium that simulates that. And so there's a lot of work being done um, to try to come up with a good growth medium that makes the cells happy. Yeah. Um, but that's a really challenging thing because the way it's been traditionally done, at least at the R&D scale, is using fetal bovine serum, which is a fancy term from, from, for blood that's extracted from, from the fetus of a calf, uh -huh. um, which is a, you know, it's a supply chain that obviously has a lot of issues, especially for, you know, a product that's going to cater toward a, a vegan or vegetarian audience. Um, <laughs> and the cells love this stuff, but it's widely viewed as, as a non-starter, um, as an ingredient for growth medium in, in cultured meat. Wow. Um, so a lot of work is being done now to use plant proteins and other things to kind of simulate um, the, the the media that the cells want, and then they they start to to grow. Um, it takes about twenty four hours for the cells to 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 double in number, um, and eventually they'll kind of max out the size of the bioreactor they're in, and then they'll graduate to to a new bioreactor that's a little bit larger. Then they'll fill that one. And then they'll go to a new bioreactor, and then they'll fill that one, and so on and so on. Is wow. is, is is how it tends to work. And um, and and Joe, at the end product, um, such mm -hmm. as it is, is that is it, that is then something that is formed, sculpted, pressed, or otherwise manipulated to resemble either ground beef or a chicken breast or some other sort of right. What appears to be recognizable to you know human consumers is yeah. that's right, right? Yeah, and and this is still an area where there is a lot of uncertainty. So mm -hmm. in my piece, I was looking at um, a couple dueling reports about how much cell cultured meat is actually going to to cost, and all of them were only looking at the the cell slurry, um, right. which is a lot of it, a lot of it is just water, right? Like the most expensive yep. water on earth, but it's basically just a <laughs> mixture of water and cells. Yeah, right. um, and and how that how that product is then going to get from some sort of form that resembles a steak, you know, or, or, or anything, you know, really resembling meat is really unknown how much expense and kind of logistical difficulty that's going to add into the process. I would argue that, you know, there are some companies that are looking at doing that on a kind of small, you know, tasting room scale, uh -huh. um, you know, eat just as the company who's working in Singapore and they're making like a, like a chicken nugget that's blended with plants. Um, but I, I don't think anyone really knows, you know, how to make a steak like thing. So for now, right. the, 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 the most, um, and, and do that at scale. So I think the most likely product we're, we're going to see anytime soon is something that's a ground product. So a burger, a nugget, yeah. uh, that kind of thing. Right, right. Now, let me get to the nitty gritty here. Who is paying for this? Like, how are these companies 
raising the incredible sums of money that you describe in your article uh, in order to advance the research and development of this product. Where is all that dough yep, coming from? Yep. So, so most of it is is venture capital. Um, mm-hmm. There's a bit of public money. There's a bit of philanthropic money. You know, going toward research, um, but most of it's coming from venture capital. And 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 among the the investors um, of those, you know, you're seeing a mix. You're seeing, um, you know, your standard your standard VC firms. You're seeing some, you know, sovereign wealth funds of nations. You're seeing some banks. Uh, you're also seeing um, celebrities. Some, some- <laughs> celebrities, yes, Leonardo Leonardo DiCaprio just got in. Yeah, um, but you're seeing meat companies too, and well, actually, that's yeah. Sorry, sorry, no, no, no go ahead. That's uh, that to me is the most interesting part of this. Actually. It is. It is the most interesting thing, and I, and I think that it's been used. The fact that you know Tyson Foods, for instance, has invested in cultured meat. It's been used, uh, I think, kind of irresponsibly in the press to to suggest, oh, the writing's on the wall. Like these big meat packers want to get in. And from what I understand, you know, based on the conversations I've had, yes, you know, to an extent, these companies are hedging their bets, right? And they they're they're like, okay, if this really works out, we want a piece of it. But sure. but it, what it really is is once you become an investor, you know, the books open up to you, and so they it's 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 a way that you know, companies like Tyson can keep an eye, uh, a very close eye on how these potential right. competitors are developing. And it's not necessarily a sign that there is or ever will be a viable product. Right, right. Very interesting. Now, if everything went according to plan, say the Good Food Institute plan, because Good Food Institute, we should mention, and they've been guests on my show in the past, um, they are huge proponents of both plant and uh cultured meat products, right? Their, their whole yes. thing is like, we got to get rid of meat altogether. Yes. Um, but if everything went according to the plan that they advanced, demonst- you know, supposedly demonstrating that this was a viable economic opportunity, um, how, just how much cultured meat could be grown under the perfect circle? And what percentage of current beef supplies would that offset? Yep. So um, in, in a way, the genesis of my story was this techno-economic analysis that the Good Food Institute published earlier mm-hmm. this year in March. And um, yeah, they're an organization that broadly represents, uh, you know, plant-based and cultured meat companies and is trying to, you know, they're often helping journalists try to understand the lay of the land. They publish reports on the industry, um, you know, to an extent, I think they help to raise money and are, are just kind of a general cheerleader for this stuff. And they um, give and money too, I think, they, don't they? They give they money. Do, yep, they do. They do get money, and they fund their own research mm-hmm. um, that way. So, the, what their their report actually outlined a really specific scenario, and what that was is in 2030, so nine years from now, you could have uh, a cultured meat industry that was creating um, 100 kilotons um, of of uh, of cultured meat a year. So about about 10 percent of of the of the um kind of meat supply of the um of the i guess what it would be is yeah it would be 100 100 kilotons and that is uh it, basically that would be like 10 times what impossible burger and beyond and the and the companies um like that are selling now so so oh. not a hugely meaningful amount of the entire world's meat supply but but a good amount and what they are they're projecting is that it would be um also it would achieve price parity 
roughly by right. by that year. So nine years from now, we're doing you know quite a bit more than um, Impossible and Beyond and the like are already doing, and it's going to be cheaper than meat. So that so they see like commodity meat. So they see this as as kind of gradually overtaking. Um, eating into the market share that meat sees now. Right, right. I mean, it, it, I, I think you should point out right now um, just how much a pound of this lab-grown product actually costs because it's in the tens of thousands, right? Yeah, so according to GFI's own numbers, which were given to them by under NDA, um, actually not given to them, but given to an intermediary um, mm-hmm. who actually wrote the report under NDA, um, they estimated that the high estimate that we're currently seeing is yeah $10,000 a kilo and the <laughs> low is the low current day estimate is is you know about $150 a kilo and right. by the way that's just for the raw cell slurry right so that's not for a finished product that doesn't represent you know supermarket and distributor markups or any of that. Right. It's just for the cost of production. Right. Um, so that would translate to an enormous price for the consumer. Yeah. I mean, even if you were, I mean, I saw as I was doing my research for this, I saw that there were, you know, in the, in, I think it was in Holland or something they reported that, you know, 40% of consumers said, sure, we'd spend, you know, double the cost of meat. I'm yeah. thinking to myself, yeah, really? You did? <laughs> Really? You're going to spend 150 bucks for a chicken breast? Yeah, you are. Sure you are. Yeah. Um, um, one thing I wanted to ask you about just quickly in passing is, is there any nutritional difference? Like, uh, because meat, in my opinion, is a highly nutritious product. You may disagree with all kinds of things about the meat industry, but the reality is meat is really, really nutritious in many yeah. ways. Um, so are they able to replicate that nutritional profile in the slurry? <laughs> this is a really good question. And it's one I didn't really get into in my story um, because right. I, I was just, there was so much to it that I was oh really God, trying no to kidding. look at like the science and the economics. But the crazy thing is, you know, from what I understand, um, no, there there would not be um, the same nutritional profile. And some of that would need to be added. Um, huh. so you'd, you'd need to be adding, um, vitamins and, and minerals and that kind of thing. You know, uh, it's, it's not a robust nutritional profile, Incredible. um, because, you know, because these, these, um, you don't want ex- you don't want that extra stuff in, in the reactors and what nutrients you are giving the cells, you know, hopefully they're consuming. Um, yeah. so there's kind of not much left over at that point, um, <laughs> which, which does bring up some questions, right. Of like, does this. Why not? If, if we need to add nutrients, why not just eat those nutrients? Well, yeah, directly. Right. <laughs> or, you know, find some other source, some other natural yeah. source. You know, okay. But let's move on from that. But I, I just wanted to get that. You know, I wasn't in the article, and I, I wasn't able to find anything online that would. And I thought, well, maybe you've come across that. And I, you know, I was just curious um, because yeah. it doesn't seem all that plausible to me that it would have everything that a regular uh, piece of meat does. But yeah. um, the, the the next big question before we take a break, the next big question I had for you was. You, there was an alternate report that was produced by a guy who works in the pharmacology industry uh, 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 whose name is Humbird. Mm-hmm. And you cited that report quite extent and quoted him quite extensively. And I wondered yeah. if you could come through with some of the um, some of the sort of highlights of what he had to say about the the actual pie in the sky aspect of this entire endeavor. 
Yeah. So yeah. So this is Dave Hunbird, and he wrote a report yeah. that was commissioned by um, Open Philanthropy, um, which is a foundation that's, by the way, a very very big investor in the um, alt protein space. Um, they have funded, uh, you know, plant based. Uh, meat companies and and the like, and so they're not um, as an as an organization. Open philanthropy is not you know inherently antagonistic towards right. this stuff. And animal welfare is one of their big um, focus areas. Uh, but they are known for trying to apply a really kind of rigorous data driven approach to their giving, and that's where this came in. It uh -huh. was kind of like you know if we what I assume the thinking was is if we're going to give money to this, we should know that it's going to be a viable product. And then we're not sort of, you know, just throwing money into a hole. Um, and so <laughs> Dave Humbird uh, was the guy they hired. He does this for a living. He's um, He used to work uh, at NREL, um, which is uh, the National Renewable Energy Lab, kind of doing due diligence work. But basically, you know, contract um, – Clients like Open Philanthropy and the federal government and, and mm -hmm. a lot of other people will come to him and say, hey, you know, is this, is this something we should put money in? Is it going to work at scale? Right. And so he spent two years preparing this analysis. And what he found was um, – was well was no <laughs> no that, that, <laughs> in that a it, word <laughs> yeah that that it will it will not make sense at scale so he he assumed that um you know you can have um that same amount of, of gfi so t 100 kilotons a year which is you know sort of 10 times what um impossible and beyond are doing right now because he wanted to factor in economies of scale. You know, the bioreactors are going to get cheaper. The growth medium is going to get cheaper, all this stuff at scale. Um, but even at scale, there's going to be kind of these intractable problems. And this, you know, this is like a hundred page document um, and it's yeah. mostly just problems. Um, he yeah. called in one of our interviews, he said it's a wall of no that these companies right. are facing. Um, right. But I'll, I can list a few of them here. So um, so the first, you know, is that um, this media is going to require a lot of amino acids. Um, and it we don't have enough amino acids of the quality needed to support a robust culture industry today. So, so we'll have to, in fact, scale up this culture grade um, amino acids industry at the same time. And that that's going to be a huge challenge for a lot of reasons because it does, it just doesn't exist. And there's still all these technical questions about, well, how cheaply can we do that? And, and what quality do we need so that it's not, you know, um, putting toxins into this into the cells that we then eat or so that it's mm. not killing the cells with stray peptides and all these things it's just a huge problem sure. um, if that can be solved then eventually you know at a big enough scale those costs could kind of go away but the bigger problems that he found actually have to do with the capital costs and and actually constructing these facilities and so mm -hmm. what he found and 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 what he determined is that um, sterility is really going to be the big challenge here because animal cells in culture are incredibly um, just vulnerable. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, they're growing in this synthetic blood essentially that that I that I told you about and yep. that's an incredibly attractive medium for bacteria and other things mm -hmm. to 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 replicate and grow so stuff is going to want to get in there even if it's hermetically sealed and if it does we'll think about it this way right it it takes it takes a culture it takes a cultured animal cell 24 hours to double um but bacteria can 
you know, can, can double much, much more quickly. So if allowed to, to kind of just, you know, if some bacteria gets in there and allowed to proliferate, you know, at yeah. the end of 24 hours, what you're going to have is a bacteria culture. You're going to have an entire <laughs> reactor filled with bacteria. It'll oh, crush Jesus. the cells that are in there and it will overwhelm the cells. And right. so it's really, from what I understand, it is absolutely uh, a non-negotiable aspect of this. Like these areas have to be clean and yeah. it's you know the the industry will often say well it's going to be like a brewery right and every restaurant's going to have a bioreactor in the back or a couple and that'll supply their meat or that will supply the meat for the you know for that for that wow. neighborhood or for that what area and, and the reason why that's so challenging is because like the biosecurity needs of this are just really intense yeah. um and if you get, you know, contamination in your tubes, you know, you might have to take your whole factory apart just to try to find, find out, you know, where there, where there's a, um, where it's getting in. I mean, one of the people I talked to said, this is really about like a single welding on a single tiny piece of pipe. If that gets a hole in it, you're screwed, right? right? right. It's, it's that kind of thing. And so in order to actually do this in like a huge facility that's supplying, you know, a meaningful amount of meat, you know, not just a little bit of amount of meat, um, that is going to require, you know, they, in, in pharmaceutical industry, they call it a clean room, but it's an area that like runs at positive pressure and can blow out a certain amount of air particles all the time. And it's just really, really, really expensive to build. Right. Um, and that creates some serious problems. So the way Humbert told it to me in an interview was he said, you can have a big plant or you can have a clean plant, but you can't have both. And the problem for this industry is that it's, if it's going to uh, meaningfully displace uh, traditional animal agriculture, they'll need to have plants that are both big and clean. And the science suggests they can't do that. Um, but that's not even really the only issue. Um, there are many more. So uh, <laughs> another one I'll just get to quickly is um, these cells uh, are very delicate. They don't have, um, you know, they have these sort of semi-permeable cell walls that are not rigid. And okay. because of that, they're very prone to what's called shear stress, which essentially just means they can get torn apart. And they're so um, given to that kind of stress that even, uh, you know, carbon dioxide bubbles, um, because they do uh, kind of excrete, excrete, um, carbon dioxide as, as a, as a kind of, um, byproduct of their digestion. Um, uh, if you pour, put in oxygen to try to counterbalance that, even just simple little oxygen bubbles can rip them up. Um, wow. and so that puts really, uh, strong limits on the size of bioreactor you can use because they need to be sure. stirred around or the cells won't get um, oxygen and feed and all the things they need at the same rate. And that can cause cell death or that can mean products that are inconsistent. Um, but bigger reactors need to be stirred harder. They need to have more oxygen piped in and that can kill the cells. So the economies of scale in cell culture really is huge bioreactors. If we could do this in, in large bioreactors, then we could really maybe crack the economics eventually, but it, you can't, you, you can't do it because the cells get killed. And there's one more reason too. And then, you know, this is just a handful of the things, but the cells also excrete waste. Right. Um, it, it's, it's lactate and ammonia. And, you know, once they eat uh, that, that comes out and that gets into the sealed environment of the bioreactor. And once there's enough of that stuff in there, they're sort of self-limiting. They just stop growing. Uh -huh. And and that puts limits on the size of the bioreactor bio too. Now, there are some companies that are trying to cycle this stuff out. They're trying to cycle out the waste while keeping the 
cells themselves in. Uh -huh. um, but you can only do that in much smaller reactors. And if you have smaller reactors to have a big facility, you need to have a much bigger facility because there's a lot more reactors and a lot more equipment. And then that gets really expensive. In fact, Humbert right. found that that's called perfusion. It, that's even a much more expensive uh, approach ultimately than trying to use the larger reactors, even though it's more efficient from a medium perspective. Wow. Um, so those are some of the challenges and that's just a uh, few. Just incredible. We're going to take a short break, Joe. Uh, we'll be right back. Uh, it's time for a little sponsor drop, um, but stay tuned for more with Joe Fassler. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca, helping you to plan your next getaway. Ithaca has waterfalls and wineries, art and theater, outdoor recreation, and family fun. The area is famous for its glacier-carved gorges, co-op-run businesses, and cultural influences from Cornell University and Ithaca College. Plus, you can't beat the beauty of Cayuga Lake, the largest of the Finger Lakes. Beyond 150 waterfalls and some of the region's best hiking trails, Ithaca is cider. The area is well known for its local cideries, which are leading the way in America's cider revival. You can hear from the region's cider makers directly on HRN series Hardcore. There's something really special about Ithaca's climate for cultivating delicious apples steeped in history and terroir. Let Visit Ithaca help you plan your next trip to this hub of food, drink, culture, and agritourism. Home of New York's craft cider, I love New York. Get started at visitithaca.com. Okay, then. So, all right. So now we have, uh, you have just outlined the fact that pretty much every aspect of this um, endeavor is incredibly expensive, whether yeah. it's the amount of, of sheer territory you need in order to build a facility big enough for the either large or small bioreactors, the sterility aspect of it, finding the appropriate growth medium. Um, it just, it goes on and on. Do you have any numbers that you can kind of throw around to impress people with? about yeah. like just some of the costs that we're talking about? Right, right, right. So Humbird found that um, if you use the big reactors, that first approach, then it's going to cost $37 a kilo. Even in a fairly mature industry, that's that's selling more than like Beyond Meat and Impossible Burgers are right now. Um, right. And so that, that translates to about 18 a pound at, at you know, at the factory, <laughs> um, which could which could mean much, you know, it could mean forty five dollars a pound um, at the grocery store. Sure, and you know, and and if you use perfusion, the smaller reactors that cycle out the waste, um, he found it would be fifty one dollars a kilo. Um, <laughs> just again to produce. So we're talking about way, you know, prices that are just much higher than, than commodity meat. Yeah. I mean, let's face it, commodity meat at the grocery store, you know, pork is like two bucks and change a pound. I mean, you can, it's uh, the reason everybody eats so much meat is because it's so cheap. There is, I can't even imagine how they could get this down to a, a level that would be uh, at all uh, of interest to yeah. um, not even just consumers, but even institutional buyers who can who can actually afford to. I mean, who are looking for the economies of scale that a big buy can bring you. You know, they're still not going to want to spend five bucks a pound on a burger if they can, you know, spend two dollars a pound on conventional ground beef, right? So exactly, and it's it's going to be. 
at way more than $5 a pound for a burger. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. And a lot of parts of the world, you know, they don't even eat burgers. I mean, burgers are sure. very, are very American thing. Um, and a lot, if very this is supposed so. to be a feeding the world solution, you know, it's, it's, it's in every, in a lot of other places, it's about, it's about steaks, you know, so yeah. there's limitations there. Um, but I think what's clearly happening. And if you look at, you know, some of the things that folks are saying in the industry in response to this piece or, um, uh, or in their own language, what they're clearly hoping will happen is that it will. This will all work out on a large enough scale that it can be a popular niche product, you know. And maybe it's the kind of thing where you know you go to a tasting room in San Francisco and you get a, you get a fifty dollar burger, but you got to say you ate cultured meat, and and it's it's that yeah. sort of thing. And and th- that will buy the industry enough of a foothold and enough time uh, yeah. to figure out some of these technical challenges that are unsolved right now. Um, but that all depends on the kind of, you know, continued generosity and patience of investors, which I think, you know, really remains to be seen. Absolutely. So let me ask you this. Who exactly do you think is driving the quest for this? Is this like, is this, um, uh, I don't know, is it environmentalists? Is it, uh, you know, PETA? Is it meat companies? It's people who think that they're going to get rich off of this. What, yeah. because- it's, it's to me, it's, I mean, it has always sounded so impractical and so impossible that, um, that I've always been curious about who wants to spend the money on this and why, what is their motivation ultimately? What do you, what do you, what does your research tell you? Yeah, it, it's not monolithic. I think there's a lot of, a, a lot of motivations and you just mentioned some of the main ones, right? Animal welfare, um, mm-hmm. you know, plain old fashioned greed, um, uh, you know, environmental, uh, reasons. Um, some people just, you know, think it's cool. I mean, the press, you know, loves the novelty of this stuff and loves to just kind of like, you know, entertain the idea of it. Um, and it is interesting, right? I mean, you know, raising livestock and slaughtering animals for meat has been part of, you know, human societies for a very, very long time. Um, so it, it, it is like the, the, the idea is truly disruptive. Um, and I think that gets a lot of, you know, folks interested, but, 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 but yeah, why continue to fund this if the writing is already on the wall, um, that, that it, it's just not going to be viable. Um, and that's one of my questions too. Now, now some folks will tell you, well, well, you know, that report is, is wrong or, um, it doesn't fully, you know, uh, the fact that the pharmaceutical industry couldn't do it cheaper doesn't mean that we can't do it cheaper as food companies mm-hmm. because we're, we're approaching it differently. Um, but there's often not a lot of specifics in there. And, um, you know, even after the piece came out, I've talked to some people in the industry off the record who have said, yeah, like folks, folks know they can't do this a lot of the time, or they believe they will, but they know they can't do it now. And, and the, and the goal in some cases, and even, isn't even to like launch a viable product, but it's simply just to get acquired, um, is, is something that I've oh, heard. So, um, mm. it, it's really hard to say, but I do think, you know, um, I think the the kind of first generation of companies who 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 started out with this stuff and made some really big promises and raised a lot of money, they're in pretty deep. 
Um, and they kind of need to figure this out because they've promised they can do it. Um, and so that sustains some of it. And I, I think the media has also kind of sustained this inevitability narrative. Um, but I do, I do think that you're also starting to see a shift. Um, I think some of the companies that do this stuff, their, their goals are getting more and more modest. Um, so some, one of the pieces, uh, one of the companies I talked to for the story, uh, they're called wild type and uh-huh. they are doing cultured fish. Uh, they want to do basically salmon. I, I mean, uh, sushi and, and sashimi. Um, they're going to do these very high grade, you know, small cuts of cultured fish. Um, and you know, their goal right now is not to completely disrupt the meat industry. They're very transparent about that. In fact, they they agreed with a lot of the conclusions in the story and they told me so. Uh-huh. Um, what they're doing is they're saying, listen, we're going to go after a niche audience and right. that can pay, you know, good money for an expensive product. And we hope that it will offset some of the growing demand for protein in the world as, as you know, people worldwide, you know, want to eat more and more animal protein. Yeah. Um, and they think, you know, they hope in maybe in 50 years, um, this will be much more common. But right now, that's not so much the goal. It is to make a niche product. And I think that's increasingly as these, as these, as the industry is forced to become more transparent about its own dilemmas, um, it, it'll be clear that that's more and more the goal. The other thing I'll say is that there there is another way forward here, which is to do a blended product. And mm-hmm. some people say if you do cultured fat and blend that into the Impossible Burger, then that's mm-hmm. the perfect union because you get you know you get the sizzle from the animal fat, um, but you don't. You, but it's basically made from plants, and that that's probably what we're going to see is we're going to see these blended products that are mostly plants but have a bit of special sauce that's cultured, cultured right. cells, and and I think that's going to be promising. But again, it's not going to lead to wild scale disruption um, of animal meat because we're just talking about teeny, teeny, tiny amounts. Yeah. But that that's a very interesting point. I, I think that's ultimately the most, um, I don't know, it just makes the most sense to me. But you know what, what struck me as I was reading through your piece and, you know, some of the other things I read was like, if we are willing to put, you know, venture capitalists and various organizations and U.S. taxpayer dollars and everything else that's going into this, um, is willing to invest this much money into a product like this that is now demonstrating that it's probably not going to come to scale anytime soon, if ever, um, and more importantly, isn't going to deliver even the nutritional value uh, that conventional meat brings. I mean, it's like, why aren't we working on fixing the industry instead you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, why are we not? Why? Why is all this tens of millions of dollars going into you know growing cells that may or may not ever end up being on somebody's plate um, when we have the egregious problems that we see right now in terms of animal welfare, in terms of the environmental costs of the way we raise meat now? Um, yeah. It just seems to me that some of that money could be very well spent in figuring out a different system for animal agriculture um, instead yeah. of you know, pie in the sky. And that I find very frustrating about this. Um, Yeah, I I tend to agree with you. I mean, I I think that we, you know, the research shows we we do need to be eating less meat, but the question is how do we get there? And I think in one way that, that cultured meat is a response to that question that says, well, we can't get there in terms of, um, people actually wanting to do that. In fact, there's a kind of fatalism to it, right? Where it's like, we, we actually can't reverse course. Nothing can change. All we can do <laughs> right. is substitute in something else that is marginally better, um, but, you know, tricks people essentially. Yeah. And and I think it's a, it's a sort of 
I mean, shirking of responsibility in a way, because uh, there are ways to have people eat less meat. And and one way you can do it is by kind of taking out you know, the exploitation from, from the, que- from the equation, right? If you, if you protect workers, um, better, and if you, you know, stop, uh, paying farmers to pollute through growing like vast monoculture corn and soy, um, then all of a sudden the economics of traditional meat start to look really different, right? Yeah, they um, do. But, but we can't, we haven't been able to do that in part because the the politics of this meat status quo are so entrenched. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in a way, it's like cultured meat is this technological solution to the political problem of the meat industry's power. Um, but I would argue that it's 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 potentially misaligned in, in that sense because um, it it also relies on some of the same status quo. So what what is what are these cells going to be fed on? Well, they're going to be fed on commodity soy, you know, glucose from from commodity soy and amino acids from commodity sorry, from from corn and then amino acids from commodity soy. Right. And right. and and that keeps the system intact actually rather than, than really disrupting it. So, um yeah, I, I really do think that we need to look more carefully at the at the political solutions here and not just trying to sort of like science our way out of it. I know. It's so interesting, Joe. It always comes down to the politics of it, doesn't it? Yeah. It always comes down to who is buying what legislator and, you know, how are they going to make them do what's going to make it most profitable for them and be damned to the rest of the world. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm just... Anyway, but, you know, I mean, with that in mind, for example, the USDA just a couple of days ago awarded Tufts University $10 million. Okay, that's not a huge amount of money, but that's not chump change to conduct more research into lab-grown meat. I mean, what? Why? Why are we doing that? Why aren't we finding a cheap way to to reprocess and repurpose all of the manure, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, so that we're not polluting the waterways and spraying it all over everybody's fields? I mean, you know, it's like these are these are real world problems that we could spend 10 million dollars solving and probably come up with a real solution within maybe a couple of years. But they're not nobody's funding that research that I know of. But this, you know, gets 10 million. I just, you know, right. That that drove me crazy. Yeah, you know, I I was actually surprised that to see USDA do that in part because um and and you know, this is a whole other thing we haven't talked about, but one reason we're we're not going to see these products anytime soon is because it hasn't even been decided really um how they're going to be regulated. We know there's this unusual right. power sharing ar- agreement between FDA and USDA. Um yep. but beyond that, you know, if there are specifics, they haven't really been been ironed out in public. Um and so, you know, why is the government putting money into um, researching a, a potential hypothetical form of products that it itself yet does not know how to deal with um, is, a, is a good question. But, you know, some of the folks I talked to for this piece had some good answers uh, for that. And, and, and one thing that they talked about is that um, the industry, as you, as you see it right now, is it's intensely proprietary. I mean, one, I think one reason it, it took so long for a story like mine to come out is because these companies really share so little because they don't have to. And it's really hard to know right. how much product, how much progress they've made and, and what exactly they're doing and what their challenges are and, and all of it. And, um, and even, you know, High-level university researchers in, researchers in the field often just have no idea what's going on, kind of behind those closed closed doors. Um, yeah, and so uh, you know, publicly funded research, at least it, what it does do is it is it puts in some you know open source science out there, and it's stuff that can be used by anyone, and it helps you know 
increased transparency and anyone can use it and take advantage of it. And, and that kind of thing um, tends to help industries move along more quickly because it's not just, oh, if one company makes a breakthrough, then they're the only ones who know about it. And we find out in five years, right. it's like if one of these scientists make make a breakthrough, well, then everyone can benefit from it. And even, you know, even pharmaceutical industry in this case could benefit from it. Um, That said, though, and this is a problem with, you know, government funding a lot um, and not just cell cultured meat, but but it's like, well, who's actually, you know, well capitalized enough to actually be able to take advantage of that? Well, it's it's really just a handful of, you know, maybe, you know, a a couple dozen companies in the world who who have the money and have the technology and have the expertise to take advantage of 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 that. So it's it's not totally great, but you know that would also be no different from the meat industry research, right? Is is, is still these, these major meat packers that that financially benefit the most from that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess we should leave it there because we've now been talking for fifty, almost fifty minutes, and that seems to be everyone's <laughs> everyone's limit of uh, you know ability to pay attention. But boy, what an interesting story, Joe! Congratulations, I really, really enjoyed it. People, it's not it's September twenty second at the counter. Check it out. This is a very, very well researched, very thorough piece. Um, that really, you know, brought up as many questions as it answered, actually, <laughs> which I think is the mark of really good journalism. So, Joe, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And let's stay in touch. Keep me in mind when you have another really good story. Well, I mean, all your stories are good, but, you know, you know what I mean. Thanks, Katie. An interesting issue like this. I really appreciate your time. And thanks to my sponsor today. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening, folks. Until then. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>